Let's jump in. We're at week seven. Uh, something very dear to my heart. Uh, this top of the year, as I said, I begin to pray about uh, my life personally, leading this house and where we're going. I try to ask hard questions of myself uh, and what it's all about following Jesus. And so I was already in the middle of a series called the kingdom of God. It's, it's God's kingdom, his government. We started in September last year. I think we're already 21 lessons in. So we've been teaching on it 21 weeks on Wednesday night. So if you're not here, come, I'd love to have you. But if you can't, go on YouTube and begin to watch those. I've got several people that don't attend, believers that are watching them. But I said to somebody, I've learned more in that Wednesday night teaching, digging it out about the kingdom of God than I've learned in any other teaching that I've ever done. I always thought revelation would be uh, my most interesting topic that I did. But the kingdom of God has been the thing that has challenged me the most of really why are we here and what are we doing here and what's the point of this thing we call church. So those things begin to run around in my heart. If when you look around, when I came to the top of the year, I asked the question, is this what Jesus thought about 2000 years ago in his mind when he died for us? Did he see a bunch of buildings on the corner? filled with a bunch of people that had labels and denominational preferences who met one hour a week to talk about him and sing songs about him and perhaps give money to him. And then we go back out into what we would call life and we live our life. And maybe we do it well, maybe we don't do it well, but those things were going through my mind. Is, is this what it was about? When he was hanging on the cross, dying for us, is this what he saw one hour a week on a Sunday with a bunch of people who come and call themselves Christians who go back out in the world and are we any different and are we making any difference? Are we truly the light? Because when you read and study what Jesus said, and this is the topic of Sunday, he wasn't just trying to gather followers, he was trying to build a kingdom. And if we're not careful, we call ourselves followers of Jesus, but we don't ever build his kingdom doing what he wants us to do and why he left us behind. If Jesus only wanted followers, the best thing for you would be give your heart to him and then let him bring you on up into the eternal realm. Get you off the God forsaken planet, make it easier for everybody. You get saved, you get out of here. But he doesn't, he leaves us here in the middle of the muck and the mire and the mud and the sweet by and by. He leaves us in the nasty now and now. It says, I'm not bringing you to me. I'm going to come to you and empower you to build my kingdom. And so that was going in my heart on Wednesday night as I taught it to try to be thoughtful with all of it. And then I ran up on January. I want to know what it means to follow Jesus. We're seven weeks in. Here's our primary scripture. Matthew chapter four, follow me, he told them, and I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And then this is what my thought is for today. And I hope to make it clear to you before we worship and praise him. When following Jesus is about everything but the main thing. My belief, I don't think it's an opinion. I would, I would think it's fact. My belief is that in the 2,000 years we've been doing this thing, we forgot what the main thing is. And we make it about all the other things, but the main thing. Now, the issue becomes, 
I guess we could all argue what is the main thing. And it just depends on what denomination you're in. If you're Pentecostal, the main thing is you need to speak in tongues. If you're Baptist, the main thing is you need to go to Sunday school and be discipled. If you're Methodist, the main thing is you need to make sure you sing the hymns and light a candle. If you're Catholic, the main thing is to go to Mass. I dated a Catholic girl in high school. Mm, come on, Jesus. <laughs> and if you ever want to know how fun life is, hook a Pentecostal up with a Catholic girl. <laughs> uh, my, my mother raised me. You, go, you could go to hell any minute. Like you, you just could go to hell. Like you could wake up and have a bad thought. You're in hell. Jesus is coming any minute. So I was always thinking he could be here. You're about to kiss her and you think, oh, he could come back right now and I'm going to burn in hell forever. So I was raised that way. I was raised at any given moment. The trumpet will sound. You better make sure you're living right or you could miss it. So that's my upbringing. That's why I have so many issues today. <laughs> Literally, literally, it's still true. It still rings in my head. A fool could die before his time, you know? And then I, I dated her. She was my high school girlfriend. Well, her upbringing was basically do anything you want to do. Hallelujah. Obviously no rapture here. All she had to do is go to mass. As long as we went to mass, we could basically do anything we wanted during the week as long as we came to mass. And so I went to mass, no funnier thing than a Pentecostal going to a Catholic mass because I've never, I had never been to one and it was like, okay, we stand now. Okay, no, we sit back down. No, we kneel. No, we up, we're down, we're up, we're down. I thought it was kind of cool, especially when you got ADD. It's like, this is great. <laughs> but then I found out I couldn't take communion. I'm like, well, why can't I go take communion? Which I thought was gross. Everybody drinking out of the same cup. But I was like, why can't I go there? Like, you're not Catholic. I was like, well, I'm a Christian. Oh no, you have to be a Catholic to take communion. So everybody's got a main thing. I just wonder if the main thing we say is really what Jesus thinks is the main thing. And so it genders, because I stand up weekly to do this, it genders, well, I want to die well. And I want to, I, here's something I'll tell you why I'm standing here doing this. Years ago, I, I was at a leadership training and I heard a gentleman say this. It was dorky, but it was profound. He said, I wonder what it would be like if you spend your entire life baking apple pies and you get to heaven only to find out God hates apples. It was the dorkiest thing, but I never forgot it. That was over 30 years ago. Because what it told me is I can be really busy here doing what I think matters only to stand in front of eternal God to go, bro, it doesn't matter. That's not what I was after. And so I have this internalized button to always ask myself, is this what God is after? I want to talk about that today. To understand what is the main thing, we have to go back to the scripture, verse 20. I've not really talked about this much. But this is what it says after he says, follow me. It says immediately they left their nets and they followed him, which is weird because there, there's a lot, I highlighted it in pink, there's a lot of issues here. I don't know many men that would just drop everything they're doing to go follow a random stranger, quit your business, Stop everything because when it says immediately they left their nets, it kind of sounds bibly, bibly, bibly. That felt well. 
It sounds bibly that they left their nets, but, but what we would say is, well, immediately they walked away from their job. They walked away from provision. They walked away from the thing that's going to pay the bills and get them a new camel and a new roof and whatever bills they would have back then, whatever taxes they had to pay. And it said immediately they left this thing. Well, if you study it out, it, it, it reads quickly, but if you study it out, that they, they almost already knew who he was. Because John the Baptist had been going around for months and years saying he's coming, he's coming, he's coming, and this is the dude. We know that Jesus from age 12 was going to the temple to talk about things. So history tells us that Jesus, before he ever got on the scene, and we have all the stories about him, because from 12 to 30, we don't get anything about him, but that doesn't mean he wasn't alive and he wasn't doing things in the community. So the buzz was they already kind of knew that this could be the potential Messiah, which tells me they already knew that this is not about some religion. This is about Jesus, the Messiah, is going to basically rule the world. So they weren't thinking individual churches here. They were thinking the guy we follow will be the world ruler. In other words, he'll overthrow Rome. He'll overthrow the government. And we will sit by his side and we will rule the world. If you read the Gospels, you find that this has to be true in them because they're always asking this question. Uh, one of them said, can, one mother said, can my kids sit by you on the throne in your kingdom? The, when Jesus was resurrected, his followers said, hey, are you coming to build your kingdom right now? So they're not thinking one hour on a Sunday, singing a few songs and giving some money. They are literally thinking we will rule the world. We will sit on thrones and we will govern. I don't know if, you, if you're political, but like the World Economic Forum, we will sit in seats of government and we will rule the world. We will be making the laws for how you need to obey and how you need to live. So when we look out there today and we see governments and we hear, I don't know where you are and you're, you're thinking of where, what the world is doing, but, but this globalism, this one world government, this one world currency, this everything is pushing to a globalist thinking. Well, this is not new today. They were thinking that way back then, except the globalist thinking was not about some president, uh, Trump, Obama, Biden, or some global UN or some world economic forum, they're literally thinking that we're immediately going to follow this guy because he's going to sit on a throne. We will rule the world. So something from there, from this moment to the present time, we've left from we're going to rule the world to, man, I'm just surviving. And I don't even know if I have time to get out of bed and go. And when I get out of bed to go to the thing called church, it's boring maybe. Or it makes me feel a little better about my guilty week. And so what happens is I often wonder maybe that's why we don't immediately leave. But here's, here's my thinking. I don't know if we don't immediately really sell ourselves out to this thing. I think it's that our nets are so powerful. I think, my opinion, what I want to talk about today, 
is I think the reason Christianity suffers in America is the nets hold more power than God. Now, what happens? Here's the thought. What happens if you're, you're over the nets and you're over the fishing? What happens when you leave it all? Here's what happens. It rots. It just, if, you, if you don't show up daily and paint it, take care of it, wash the nets, if you ignore it any length of time, it rots. Now, what that tells me is anything that a human being touches, if you don't continue to touch it and spend time with it, it rots. Anything. You build a jet, you build a rocket ship, and we go to Mars. Great. Look how brilliantly brilliant we are. But that rocket ship, if you don't spend time on it every single day, even though it can go to Mars, within one generation, it will be rotted and rusted and not even usable. Because God set it up that whatever a human touches and builds, if you don't continue to touch it, if you don't continue to give it your energy and your care and your time, it will rust and rot under your nose. And it's true. Get a brand new car, it smells great, give it four weeks, it smells like Cheerios, dirty diapers, and somebody bumped into it with a buggy. It's like, dear Lord, I wash it, I wax it, it doesn't matter how much I wash and wax it. It's, it's literally in a moment of decay. And when I find something that's old and not decayed, we call it classic. Come on, old people. We call it a classic, but the reason it's a classic is because I never used it. It just sat in a garage covered and I just talk about it a lot, but it serves no function but pride to me. It might win me a trophy in some kind of thing that I go to. A years ago, a guy gave me a sport car. It was a 1984 Mazda RX-7 showroom quality is 11 years old, have 11,000 miles on it. And I said, man, how did you keep it new? Because he was so proud. He's like, it still, smell, it still smelled like showroom. But the reason it still smelled like a showroom is he only drove it a thousand miles a year and he kept it in a garage and he covered it with a, a, a beautiful cloth that he would go over the whole thing all the way down to the tires. And I thought that is special. It's a talking point, but you don't drive it in the rain. You don't take it on vacation. You don't let your grandkids in it. Come on. And when I begin to notice the older I get, I start finding out how much energy I waste on rotting things. On rotting things. Brand new pair of shoes, give them a couple of weeks, they're rotten, they're dirty. Literally, if you can get in your mind that the way God set this up, that anything a human being creates rots. Anything. Build a house as long as you're not mowing the grass and you don't paint it and you don't take care of it and you don't make sure that caulk is there. The rain begins to erode it. The sun begins to beat down on it. The shingles begin to rot and just leave the grass alone for a while. And it won't take long before the, the everything God did create takes over everything you created. That ought to, that's mind blowing. 
Like I build this beautiful home, thousands of dollars. I get a bank to give me the money for it. I build it, I paint it, I stand back, I take pictures, I invite people over. But the moment I quit giving that my energy and I come back some 40 years later and never touch it, all the grass has grown over, the trees are growing over it, everything's rotting. Why? Because everything God made, the grass and the trees and everything he made is literally taking over everything I made. Like it's an object lesson right in front of us. The object lesson is that anything God touches always trumps what we think we can do. If you think you got it, he says, oh, you think you got it? Well, I made the sun. Watch what my son will do to your, to your car. I will fade your paint. I will fade your dashboard. Watch what my son will do. Oh, you think you're so cool. Watch what my clouds and rain will do to your yard. God always trumps what we do. We're like, well, I got to go out back. Why? My backyard's eroding away. So I spend thousands of dollars to build this nice terrace. Why? Because I'm trying to outdo God. If I get the right terrace, it'll stop. But at the end of the day, it, no matter how hard we try, Mother Nature, which is what we would call it, always wins over humans. Mother Nature always wins. Anybody remember Katrina? Mother Nature always wins. Build whatever dam you want, whatever dike you want to build, whatever you want to do. Live in a high-rise apartment. There's something about it. Mother Nature always wins. And so the reality is that God put within front of us a system to teach us that everything you rots and decays and everything me trumps everything you do. And whether you believe in Jesus or not, it's just a true story. It's just, that's the way the system works. But I'm smart enough, I can beat this thing. I can beat it. I can paint it. I can spend time on it. I can kill myself. I can work 50 hours a week, 60 hours a week. Pride myself that I did 65 hours. Pride myself that I only slept four hours a day. Pride myself that my bank account's going higher. I'm just burning the candle at every end, man. Anybody ever been in the hustle? Just hustling. Because if you don't hustle, man, it's going to take over. So when it says they left their nets, know this, that whatever they walked away from is going to start rotting. And you better believe that what rots will start calling your name. Hey, don't forget about me. Don't, for, don't forget that I'm here. Don't forget what I can do for you. So this was my thought. I do know this. I might not know what the main thing is, but I know it's not the rotting thing. I know the main thing we're to spend our life with is not on something that's rotting. So whatever it is, it can't be something that rots and rusts and decays. Well, that eliminates a bunch of stuff. And yet, if you ever found out the thing that frustrates you is the rotting thing. I'm cussing, losing my mind over it, kicking the dog over it. Mad that it didn't work, mad that it broke down, mad that I lost money, mad that whatever. It's amazing the power that the rotting thing has to distract me from the main thing. 
And literally, if we look around right now, everything we have on is going to rot. I had on a nice sweater this morning. It was black. You're welcome. I know you're freaking out right now. Like, my God, he's got on color. It's the end of the, it's the, end of the world. I realized I had a hole in it. I didn't want to show up and look too shabby. So I called mom and like, look, I'm already here. I don't want to drive back home. Can I come by your house and borrow one of dad's shirts? So I'm in a 90-year-old man's shirt. <laughs> and what's funny is all the old people came up to me. They go, oh, you look so handsome. They're all touching. They're all touching me. And like, oh, and I'm like, it's because it's my dad's shirt. That's why you love it. So a 90-year-old man bought this from Belk. You know, I don't... <laughs> Sometimes you got to do what you got to do. Watch what Jesus says. Maybe he knew it. Don't hoard treasure down here where it gets eaten by moss and corroded by rust. Or worse, you work hard for it and somebody else gets it. I'll tell you something, whatever you work for, the moment we bury you, people are going to argue over it. You better hope you have a good will. And even if you have a good will, if you have jerk children, they're going to still fight over it. Better hope you marry a good woman or a second or third woman, but better who, whoever you marry, everybody when you die is going to be fighting over it. I love blues and B.B. King. Great life if you watch him. Great guitar player until you read his life story. And when he died, he had this amassed fortune. But when he died, all of the women and wives that he had previously and all of his children are still fighting over his money. Seems like a great life until you die and all your exes show up wanting some of what you worked hard for. So know this, whatever rotting thing is taking us at the end, somebody else gets it. You can either give it all away while you're here, but know this, you're wasting your time if you're not careful. Stockpile treasure in heaven, which is weird. I don't even know how to do that. How would I stockpile treasure? Does an angel come down and take a $5 bill? Does heaven have a bank account? Like literally, how do I stockpile treasure in heaven? A, I would have to even believe heaven existed. How do I get my $20 bill from here? How do I stockpile my guitars in the heavenly realm? So now it just becomes, does he really mean this? How do I stockpile my, my savings account and all? Where it's, I love what he says, where it's safe from moth and rust and burglars. So somehow Jesus is trying to teach me that how I think about my treasure is it will either be giving my life to something that's eternal or giving my life to something that will rot. And my belief is the main thing is the eternal thing of what really matters. It's the eternal thing. Here's what he goes on to say. It's obvious. I wish it was, but sometimes it's not. It's obvious, isn't it? The place where your treasure is, is the place you will most want to be. And you'll end up being. Now he just tells me, the place where my treasure is, is where I really want to be. And then if, we, if we're talking church, so if we go back to church Sunday morning, you ask yourself, do I really want to be here? 
Like, do I wake up every day thinking, God, do I wake up every day on my way to work thinking I'm on planet earth for God. I'm on planet earth to move his kingdom. I'm on planet earth to make a difference. I'm on planet earth to pour hope into people who are hopeless and be the light of the world and the salt of the earth, because this is where I want to be as part of his kingdom. And yet I'm riding to work with my playlist on frustrated and tired. I've got another day in the hustle, another day in life, another day in the, in the, you know, another day, another dollar, just trying to survive, just trying to do the hustle. But I love what it says because it's what I believe about adults. Adults do what they want to do. Kids don't, they have to obey you. Adults do what adults want to do. So then the question becomes, does Mark want to do the kingdom? Do I want to wake up and go, I'm here, and this is the hard part. Every dollar I have, the house I owe, the car I drive, anything on my life is fit to be used for you. And if I use it for you, then I'm actually storing things up for an eternal realm one day. Like I literally start thinking that way. The job that I have is not just for me. It's to move his kingdom forward. The money I make is not just to build another rotting home. The money I make is not just to invest solely alone to have a good retirement. The money I make is to move his kingdom forward. I'm not against retirements. I'm not against savings accounts. I'm not against investing. That's a wise way to live. But if the only thing I'm doing is investing into rotting things, sowing into rotting things, putting my energy to rotting things, then I would say, did we lose the main thing? There's no greater joy that comes in waking up and go, man, the job I have is to move his kingdom forward. And I might not make as much as I want. I might make more than I want, but I'm here to move your kingdom forward, God. I'm not here to just go to church and write a tithe check. I'm here to move your kingdom forward. Every single day, God, everything I do, and it's hard to get to, why? Because the rotting things, we worship them. I wrote this thought, oftentimes the rotting thing becomes the thing we worship. Now, that sounds religious, but I think when I show you the scripture, it will make clear sense. Because if you said to me, do you worship your truck? No, I don't worship. I don't get out in the morning and go, hell, mighty Ford Ranger. I bow before thee today and ask that you carry me the 32 miles to work and protect me with iron airbags. Like, I don't do that. And you probably don't worship your shoes. Well, you might if you really love shoes. Right? You, you, don't, you don't worship your clothes. You don't worship your house. I mean, if we think Christian, we think worship. Hands raised, singing praises. But listen to what Paul will say. Now, this scripture is in Romans, and it's about 24 years removed from Jesus. So we at least have a quarter of a century under our belt as Christians. It must be a problem because he's going to address it. Listen to what he says in Romans 1.25. They traded the truth of God for a lie. What happened in 25 years? What happened that you went from a resurrected savior believing that he's alive and going to do a kingdom to a lie. I don't know, maybe time. Maybe I thought he was coming back next week. Maybe I got bored. Maybe I was hopeful. Is it today? Is it tomorrow? He's coming back. I know. And then a quarter of a century later, it's like, man, I'm getting older. He still hasn't come back. And I start going back to the rotting things. 
because he's taking his time. He's not coming to set a kingdom. It's probably fake anyway. They probably fake the whole resurrection. It's, I mean, you're 25 years removed. So what we probably have are people that weren't even there. And he said, you're, you're trading truth for a lie. And then it says this, what happens when you do that? You worshiped and served the things They worshiped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself who is worthy of eternal praise. I'll read it one more time. They traded the truth of God for a lie so they worshiped and served the things God created. Like there's something about it that still feels godly. It's God created it. Like everything in the rocket ship headed to Mars is stuff that God made that we put together. That's pretty brilliant. And we put it together and then it begins to rot, but it's all made out of the stuff God made. And he says, well, if you're not careful, you'll worship that instead of myself. So the truth of the matter is, even though God made the world, we end up worshiping the stuff we make, giving our energy, giving our time, burned out, frustrated. So it's not just a problem then, it's still a problem now. So I went through and dug for you. The word worship means to fear or be afraid, to honor religiously and adore something. It doesn't mean that you bow down and pray to it. It just means that you honor it religiously. You post about it all the time. It takes all of your time. Every thought is given to it. Your thinking is given to it. And then it says to fear, to be afraid. Fear as in a respect, a healthy respect. But at the same time, a fear that drives you that I better honor it and adore it religiously or else. And I wonder how much we really worship because of just a fear of what the world, if I don't hustle, if I'm not doing the hustle, if I'm not out there doing it, that that I suddenly feel left behind because most of the world doesn't worship the creator. So I immediately behind the eight ball. So now it just means things that I honor religiously, giving my energy to and my time to the word served It means to serve for hire, to serve either gods or men and to be used like slaves or free men. Now he tells me that the issue will be is that I will get to a place in my life to where what I'm hired to do carries more weight than the God that created me. The thing I'm hired to do becomes the very God that I worship. Again, not worship like I bow down to my job and go, oh, thank you, mighty job. But I worship worship it because I honor it religiously. Oh my God, I'm up. I have to be on time. I have to clock in. If I don't clock in, I'm in trouble. If I'm not there, I don't get paid. And my Lord, I can't take, and they only give me two weeks off. I can't take three. Well, unless I'm sick and I could lie about being sick and get some sick days, but I'm going to try to amass my sick days up so I could retire early. Like I'm working the system. But at the end of the day, what he says, if you're not careful, you'll start worshiping the thing that hired you. All of your time, all of your energy, all of your hobbies, everything you've done is a mass for this 40, 50 hour week where everything is given out, all of your energy. And you just come home on Friday and go, man, I just want to chill for a minute, which is cool. I just want to go on a date. I just want to throw back a beer. I just want to watch a movie. I want to kick my feet up. I just want to go out in the backyard and wait a minute. Why? Because you're worn out. 
because you've been going, 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 and going because of all the debt, because of all the things I worship, because of all the things I honor religiously that are now on credit cards. Because, And then I'm like, some preacher stands up and goes, let's all run for the Lord. And you're like, run for the Lord? My God, I don't even have time. Get in a B group. Oh my God, a group. I don't have time to connect anywhere else. I've got grandkids. I've got, I've got life. I've got jobs. Come to the conference. Come to the conference. You're kidding me. I've got soccer. I've got dance. I've got ballet. I've got gym. I've got baseball. I've got football. I don't have time for that. i tell you what I do have time for, though. i got about 60 hours a week where I'm in the hustle, man. But i tell you what, preacher. I will give God about 38 to 48 minutes of my day once a week on a thing called Sunday because that makes me feel better about the hustle. And that, I'm not against that. I'm just saying that's kind of where we've evolved to. And you kind of wonder why our world's going to hell in a handbasket. It ain't because the devil got bigger. It's because maybe we started worshiping what hired us rather than who created us. And we get lost in it. I've gotten lost in it. So I put this picture together. You're welcome. You can hire me later. It's great work, by the way. Until Robin sees it and she's like, that's so dorky. So I put together this duality of the born again Mark that wants to serve God versus the rotting things that scream to me every day. The one hour a week where I lift my voice and I come to give my tithe or my offering and I take communion and I hope they sing the songs they like because this is crying out an hour a week. I just want to know God or this is my little devotion I do every night when I turn the TV off and read my Bible for about 10 minutes to feel better about myself. And then the other 90 hours of the week is this rotting thing that's screaming at me. I call it the hustle. I said to somebody the other day, it's hard to be in God's kingdom today because everybody's in the hustle. Hey, we should have B groups. You're kidding me, right? You think with two grandkids, cheer, gym, and cheer again, and soccer, and dogs with dog doo-doo in the backyard that has to be clean, grass that has to be cut, honeydew list 10 miles long, Got to run to the store because nobody makes a list when they go to the store so they come home and forgot so somebody else has to make the run. And you think I have time to go to some Tuesday night group at a person's house to talk about God? I don't have time. But I love God because we've ended up in the thing called the hustle. And really what we mean by that is we just want to add more stuff into your life. And if I can get enough God stuff in the hustle, you feel good about yourself. Or if I don't have any God, I, I always say, well, I'm sorry, preacher. Or I'm sorry, God. I've just been really busy. But I do know this. No matter how spiritual we are, we live in a world where it seems like everybody's hustling. Everybody. We wake up hustling. We wake up rocking and rolling. Busy. I often say this, and I genuinely mean it. I always say, man, thanks for coming today. I genuinely mean that. A, who wants to preach to dead chairs? Nobody. B, I love when you laugh at my weird jokes and say amen. But C, I know what it's like to live in the hustle, and you get out of bed, and you get dressed, and you bring your kids. In some way, you invest in yourself for God. And that's very touching to me. 
And I always try to just walk around and tell everybody, man, thanks for coming today. It's not a preacher political thing. It's a genuine thank you that in the hustle, you have become wise enough that, well, I at least want to invest into something more meaningful than what's killing me. And I wrote these words down. If you want to know if you're in the hustle, it creates anxiety. You're frustrated a lot. You always feel like trouble's abounding. Fear rules, guilt rules. Guilt rules, we know i got to go to church. I haven't been in weeks. That's guilt. Frustration, I don't know how much more I can do for this. Anxiety, every prayer is, and here's what I find to be true. If you want to know how deep the hustle is, write down all the prayers you pray and see if you're praying prayers for God to help the hustle or if you're praying prayers to move his kingdom forward. You can tell where you are by your prayer list. Because we will pray over the things that most touch us. So all I have to do is look at my prayer list and go, okay, Mark's praying over, man, 90% on his list are things that are rotting. The things that are frustrating him. So I've had to literally sit down myself and go, man, are my prayers, thy king, that's what he said. When you pray, pray this, thy kingdom come. That was top of the list, thy will be done, right? Like top of his list was the kingdom. That's, that's the motivation. And so if you just want to know where you stand, write your prayers out and go, how many of my prayers are just prayers of genuine anxiety and frustration about this thing called the hustle that I'm going through? And it can be a very telling thing. I wrote this thought down. I believe this with all that's in me. God's not in the business of reconciling the thing that's rotting. He's not going to reconcile the rot. It's rotting for a reason because he wants to keep you understanding, keep pressing for the kingdom. Seek first the kingdom. Let go of the nets. It didn't say neglect the nets. It didn't say don't use them to still have a business, but am I willing to separate myself from the nets to really press into the kingdom? It doesn't mean I become a neglectful man that just sits in my little prayer room and doesn't go to work and doesn't invest and doesn't take care of my future and doesn't take care of my children and doesn't work hard. It doesn't mean that. It means that I have to have a separation of the rotting things and the righteous things and I've got to be mature enough to know where I'm giving my time and energy and whatever I earn out here in the rotting things, I need to be investing into the righteous things because that will endure goes to say this, this is Jesus again, John 14, but when the father sends the advocate, is my representative, that's the Holy Spirit, he'll teach you everything and he will remind you of everything I've ever told you. I love what Jesus goes on to say, I'm leaving you with a gift, here it comes. Oh man, this is good. We're, we're digging this deep on Wednesday night. I'm giving you peace of mind and peace of heart. And then he leaves the difference between the rotting nets and the reality of his kingdom. Because the peace I'm going to give you, the world can't give you. Rotting things will never give you what I can give you. I can do for you what no one else can do for you. And then he just kind of, as a side note, hey, don't be troubled or afraid. I'm going to give you the three words. Here they are. Peace. Ask yourself if you have these. An inward tranquility. I know few people that have it. 
I read an article that said this is the most stressed out, anxious, depressed, suicidal generation that they've ever done research on. I'm like, how could this be? We have air conditioning and chicken nuggets. <laughs> how you can't be depressed with air conditioning and chicken nuggets. We've got Chick-fil-A. You just drive up and go, I want chicken nuggets. They've been prayed over. And you're depressed and anxious and burned out and sick of life and suicidal and on drugs and medication and you're 17? This generation is lost in anxiety. This generation is depressed beyond depression. This generation is hopeless looking for things. But Jesus said, no, there's an inward tranquility. Let me ask you, are you content today? Right now where you are, the car you drive, the house you live in, the clothes you wear, are you content with the rotting things you have? Are you always looking for something else rotting to add to the bag to go, finally, oh, finally, finally. That, that, just to be honest, that's me with guitars. I just need one more. How many more? I only have two hands. And literally, if I don't tune them daily, they go out of tune because they're in a basement and the humidity affects the wood, which causes the strings to rot, which means I have to spend about four hours changing the strings on every guitar, which means a set of strings is $18, $18 on all the set of strings to get them tuned and play them. And then the next day, they're all out of tune again. But there's something that says, if I could just get one more, I'll be, you'll never be content. If you're serving rotting things, it'll always be another car, another this, another that, another this, another that. Are you content today? Today. I don't need another raise. I don't need, I'm, I'm just content, man. I'm not saying I wish I could make more or have more, but I'm content. And then he says this, you'll fear nothing from God. Do you know how many Christians literally think God's out to get them? Jesus says, no, not with me. God's not out to get you. I'm trying to do something inwardly that nothing else can do for you. Here's what the word troubled means. He said, don't be troubled. So don't be this. What is this? Agitated. What? You're kidding me. You've not lived in 2023. Don't be agitated. Just ride down Fairburn Road. There's orange barrels everywhere. Nobody knows how to obey a light. Nobody knows when I come to a three-way stop. My God, you go first. Don't you know the rules? Everybody on the right. And if you really want to be agitated and know you're not even half safe, just go to a roundabout where rednecks are. Do y'all not know how to do a roundabout? A roundabout. Why are we all sitting here asking who goes next? Just go. And then you realize by the time it gets over, you're like, you're just like, I got to go pray in tongues or something. How dumb can humans, it's a roundabout, a roundabout. Anybody ever been agitated? But then he says, don't be this, don't have inward commotion. Do you know, this is just my opinion. Do you know how many people try to drink it away, smoke it away? Try to get the inward, the, the thing about it is when the buzz is gone, the inward commotion's still there. When the high is gone, the commotion's still there. When the porn is over, the commotion's still there. It just never works. And then he says, restless. I'm like, oh Lord, restless leg syndrome. Is that what he's talking about? A loss of calmness. 
I mean, if I just come to your home or you come to my home, is there just calm in your home? We're just all calm. If, if you want to know that, come live with five women and three dogs. You can lose calmness just by waking up. Oh my God, who used the last bit of coffee? That was my coffee. Who used my coffee? Y'all just went to the store. Nobody thought to get coffee. Anybody ever lived in this world? And yet it's, we're anxious because coffee is ugh, irritating me and roundabouts irritate me. And why? Because I've never come to why I'm really on planet Earth. I'm not on planet Earth to fix roundabouts. Here's the other word. Don't be afraid. But yet you know how many Christians are afraid of COVID, afraid of dying, afraid of some disease, afraid I'm going to go broke, afraid of my marriage is going to fail, afraid my children are going to have a car wreck, afraid, 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 afraid. Everything the world is, I am. And Jesus said, look, I'm going to give you an inner tranquility. I'm going to stop the commotion on the inside of you. And I'm going to give you something that the world cannot give you, Mark. And that's the main thing. The main thing is he gives me an inward tranquility of contentment. And the main thing becomes I'm content and I'm at peace and I don't have this disturbed commotion. Why? Because I suddenly grew past the rotting things that just agitate me. It ends like this. I wrote on this side, judge yourself today. Do you have tranquility right now? Is there a calmness in your home, your marriage? Is there a contentment? No fear of bad? And are you living boldly? You're not timid. You're out there. I find, I don't know, I've not done the research, just what I've read others research. This is almost foreign today. And where we find tranquility is in Netflix binging. Where we find calmness is in shutting ourselves off from the rest of the world. Where we find contentment is getting a raise or a new job. And no wonder. We wonder why churches aren't filled and people aren't rushing to hear the good news. And because I wonder how many of God's people are here. Here's the end. Though he's given us very great and precious promises so through them we can participate in divine nature. And here's the hope. Come on, somebody. You can escape the corruption. How do you do it? You got to make every effort. I love it. Here's how it works. Make every effort to add to your faith. Goodness and to goodness. Knowledge and to knowledge. Self-control and to self-control. Perseverance and to perseverance. Godliness and to godliness. Mutual affection and to mutual affection. Love. All the and twos, like it's not some dead religion. You got to make every effort. I'm going to ask the band to come up. We're going to get ready to worship. But here's the thought I want to ask you as you prepare your life. My only question to you today is not to get in your home and find are you serving rotting things. It's not to look at your checkbook. Where are you spending your money? It's not to ask you to go out and film me in a roundabout and go, gosh, that's my preacher. He needs help. But to ask one question, what every effort are you making? Every effort. 
Like what I find in my own life is it's easy to put every effort to the rotting things because there's such an expectation. Pay the bills, have retirement, show up for my kids at everything they do. I'm there, I'm there, every effort. But when it comes to my faith, am I really giving every effort or just a little effort? And I find a lot of times, if you want to just talk effort, I'm not talking time, I'm talking effort. We give God the least effort toward our faith as possible, just enough to ease the guilt versus every effort for my faith. Whether I'm on my job, the football field, the cheerleading, the gym, wherever I'm at, whatever I'm doing in my family, man, my effort. Stand and let me pray for you.